we're all prone to wander from where we're supposed to be. Watch a little baby when he begins to walk. If a parent doesn't hold it onto his hand, it'll run away quickly. The child will run away. We as adults are the same with God. There's this old sin nature that lives within us that there are times that we're so close to God and we're, we're hungry after him and we're searching after Jesus and we want to be close to him. Yet there's times in our lives where we have a tendency to want to wander away and run away. It's a propensity that we have. We're prone to wander. There's a hymn that was written many years ago that says that, that we're prone to wander the Lord that we love. And, and so we, are, we have this innate sense in us, this old sin nature that's been given to us from Adam, that's been transmitted over for years and years and years from the, the, our fathers and from him to us. We're prone uh, to wander away. For one week in my life, of, uh, years back, I was a sheep farmer, just one week. I decided to be a sheep farmer. And I realized after one week, I was finished. I wasn't going to be a sheep farmer anymore. And so I was given the task by a friend who was a close friend of mine uh, to watch over his sheep because he had some sheep that were on his farm and he was going on vacation. I thought, how hard could that be? I mean, feed some sheep, give him some water, give him some food. And, you know, that shouldn't be that difficult. I mean, you know, I, I, know, I know how to... Uh, handle animals, and I've spent time in the wild. I mean, I shot a black bear for crying out loud. I can handle a little sheep, can I? And, and so I was given this task to feed uh, some sheep. And so I was working construction at the time, as I did 10 years before I went into ministry. I was out building a home. And um, so I decided I'd go there at the end of the day and go feed these sheep. So I drove to this farm, drove in. There were the sheep. They're cute, whatever they are. There they stood and just eat grass and they're sheep. And so I, I, I walked in and got some, some food for them, threw it in the feeding trough and got some water, threw some water in, in, in the, the trough for them. And well, that seemed easy. Well, this is an easy task and drove away. Next day, kind of the same thing. Went to work and was working on a home, building a home and decided that I would come to this farm again and help my friend out. Second day, first day was great, man. I can be a sheep farmer, this piece of cake. As I'm getting close to this farm, I notice this white thing standing out in the middle of the road. As I'm getting closer to this farm, it didn't really occur to me once, maybe it's a dog or a collie or something, and uh, it didn't occur to me. The closer I got, there was a sheep standing in the middle of the road. And uh, I realized, I'm the sheep farmer, so you're not supposed to be out there. So I parked my truck and, and pushed this sheep back into, opened the gate up and got him back in. I said, well, that wasn't so bad. And, you know, chasing him around. I'm sure the neighbors, look at that guy. Look at that sheep farmer. You know, running around. And I got him back in, went and fed the sheep. Next night I go back, third night I go back, and there are like 13 sheep standing outside of the fence. And the uniqueness to this and the other thing, they were all standing on the outside of the fence, and the majority of them had their heads eating the grass on the inside of the fence. They ran to the outside and were sticking their heads back into where they were supposed to be, eating that grass. And it was a little more difficult that night. Trying, ever try to herd up 13 sheep by yourself when you're not a sheep farmer? I, what do you say to a sheep? Boy, here, boy, here, boy. I mean, just... And so I'm trying to get these sheep. I know the neighbors were all standing there look, watching me. And finally I get these sheep. So I walk around the perimeter of this farm, of this, this fence, to look for holes to find where these sheep had found their way out. I found a few and blocked them off, found some plywood and some wire and had some, some pliers with me, had my toolbox with me. I thought, oh, I got it taken care of. Next night I go there thinking it would be okay. Just about every stinking sheep was on the outside of the fence when I got there. And the majority of them... No exaggerate. We're eating with their heads, eating the grass on the inside of the fence where they were, where they left. And I was thinking, what am I going to do with this group? So a thought occurred to me, I'll just leave the gate open. Just here, go out and come back in. 
It was an interesting dynamic that took place as it got to the end of the week when I wanted to kill every one of them and have veal. Um, it, those just dreams ran through my mind. Just, oh, those veal burgers would taste very good right now. And, um, and my friend came back and I said, sheep are stupid. He said, yeah, I knew that. Why, why didn't you tell me? They're just, he said, they always want to run outside. They always want to wander outside. They, they think the grass is greener on the other side. And he said, I've had them run to the other side and, 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 I said, and stick their head back in and eat the grass. They're, yeah, they do. Why didn't you tell me that? But then I began to think about that, this moment of sheep. And I realized in the Bible, there's a lot of analogies about a shepherd and sheep. We're the stupid ones, the sheep. And we like to wander away and we think the grass is green on the other side. And when we get to the other side, we realize it's a lot better on the inside. And God says that we like sheep have gone astray. And there's a need for us to have a shepherd that woos us back in, that protects us and keeps us in the, in the herd. There are a group of people in the Old Testament that acted like sheep. Not only did they act like sheep. A group of people that we've been talking about over the last four weeks, the Ninevites. And if you've been with me in this journey, you realize that the Assyrians and Ninevites were people that Jonah was supposed to go to and give this message of redemption. But he didn't want to go there because these people were vicious. They had killed his own. They had filleted him alive. They had taken dog uh, chains and run them through their throats. They impaled him at the end of the city, his very own, his relatives. And God came to him and said, I want you to go to those people and give the message of redemption so that they can repent and follow hard after me. Jonah didn't want anything to do that. He was reluctant, but he went anyhow. And when he went there, there was this great revival that took place over 120,000 people. Greatest revival in mankind up to that point took place. Even the dogs, I shared Lassie, Mr. Ed and Clifford even put sackcloth on. They all repented and the whole nation repented. And get to the end of this chapter in Jonah, Jonah's upset. He's upset because he knew God would do what he wanted to do. And he knew if people hear the message of redemption, there's a chance that they'll repent and he will save them. Very few times in scripture are we able to look at a narrative, a story that took place and fast forward it 150 years later and see what happened to those people. We get to do that today. 150 years, just advance that in your mind and in your timeline. 150 years later, let's go to that city of Nineveh where everyone repented and it had to have been genuine repentance because God knew the motives and intents of their heart, not like humans and say, I wonder if it's a real deal. God knew it was a real deal because we see that he did not destroy them. And so the whole nation repented. And because of the repentance, God saved them. 150 years later, we see a group of people who have no remnant of God left. They have all wandered away, all of them. There's not one dad, one mom, one family that stood up and said, do you remember what God did 150 years ago? Do you remember this miraculous intervention where God stepped in and saved us from death? And we jump into this book today and we're going to wrap this up. And the word for us today is going to be this. You and I are prone to do the very same thing. So we must put measures of accountability, measures of repentance around us. Turn to the book of Nahum, two books forward from Jonah. It's not where you have your devotions very frequently, unless you like death, unless you like desecration, unless you like pillage, unless you like are a sick person. Turn to Nahum, 
Nahum chapter 1. And we're going to get a fast forward picture 150 years after Jonah went to Nineveh. If you need a Bible, hold your, please, if you need a Bible, hold your hand up. I encourage you to have your own Bible. Read it with us today. Nahum chapter 1. Please turn there with me. This is the story about the Ninevites. Those very people that Jonah went to, this is what happened in just 150 years later. When you find Nahum, stand with me, and we're going to read chapter 1, verses 1 through 11 out loud. Let's read this together. Nahum, chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. Ready? Read. An oracle concerning Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum the Echoshite. The Lord is jealous and avenging God. The Lord takes vengeance and is filled with wrath. The Lord takes vengeance on his foes and maintains his wrath against his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. The Lord will not leave the guilty unpunished. His way is in the whirlwind and the storm. And clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and dries it up. He makes all the rivers run dry. Bashan and Carmel wither, and the blossoms of Lebanon fade. The mountains quake before him, and the hills melt away. The earth trembles at his presence, the world and all who live in it. Who can withstand his indignation? Who can endure his fierce anger? His wrath is poured out like fire. The rocks are shattered before him. The Lord is good of refuge in times of trouble. He cares for those who trust in him. But with an overwhelming flood, he will make an end of Nineveh, who will pursue his foes into darkness. Whatever they plot against the Lord, he will bring to an end. Trouble will not come a second time. They will be entangled among the thorns and drunk from their wine. They will be consumed like dry stubble. From you, O Nineveh, has one come forth who plots evil against the Lord and counsels wickedness. You may have a seat. It's not your cup of coffee and devotion kind of read. But it's a truth about our God. It's a truth about people. It's a truth about us. If we don't set some measures of accountability, if we don't stay close to Jesus Christ, you and I first, we are prone to wander. This passage tells us that the Lord is jealous. We know that our God is a God of love. And sometimes a God of love is a God who extends his wrath upon people who reject him. It's a righteous God. He, he, he is, Bible tells us that, that vengeance is his, says the Lord. He has the right, he has the power, he has the ultimate authority. And there are times when God extends his wrath on people who disobey him. These people are back to their old ways. Just 150 years later, murdering, killing God followers and repeating the ways of their ancestors when Jonah didn't want to go there. And if Jonah were alive at this time, I bet he was kicking in his grave and saying, I told you so. I bet if he could have, if the the flesh side of him would have screamed out and said, God, then why in the world did you send me? If they would return to their former ways 150 years from now. Look at chapter 1 in verse 2. It says, the Lord is jealous and an avenging God. 
See, we don't talk often in our world that God has vengeance and God has wrath and God has the right and authority, but he does. It's his world. We are his people and he can do what he thinks is best for us. He has that right. He has that authority. He is God. This is the question today. How would a nation respond after the whole nation bowed before him in sackcloth and said, we will follow hard after you, Yahweh. How would they respond? Would they stick to it? Would it stay with them? Would they pass it down to their children and their children's children? Would grandma and great-grandma still hunger after God? Would this, this, this all of God continue to pass down? In this case, we see it was just the opposite. This incredible repentance that took place is nowhere to be seen. Nowhere. 150 years later, it's not even on the radar screen. The question is this, how did that happen? Here's why. You and I are prone to wander. If we are left to our own long enough, we forget all about the miracles of God. And we can seek after our own lust of the flesh, the pride of life, and the lust of the eyes. We can easily go in that path if there isn't someone challenging us and doing the one another, spur one another on, provoke one another, challenge one another, love one another. If the one another's aren't taking place and someone isn't standing up and saying no, then a whole nation can turn away from God. That's why it's very important for you and I to continue to tell the stories of what God has done. In the Old Testament, the Hebrew children would constantly tell the stories. In fact, in the Old Testament, the first five books of the Old Testament, Hebrew children would take those and memorize those. Five books of the Bible. They had an oral tradition. They would pass down the stories of God orally. Not, they didn't pull out a scroll and read it. They would quote them because they'd taken it to memory. Our country... And the Christian walk is slowly losing the ability to tell the story because we're constantly looking ahead and not taking time to celebrate what God has done. There's this need to go forward without remembering the past. It's good to tell your story because it helps other people see who God is. Ten days ago, roughly, I led a team here from Grace. We were in Asia, in Thailand and Cambodia. We were visiting our rescue kids who were once orphans, visiting our orphanages. And so while we were there, we were leaving Battambang, Cambodia. And to get to Battambang, Cambodia, we wanted to fly to Chiang Mai, Thailand to see our kids in our, our rescued home there. And so on the way there, we had to hop on a bus. This bus took us from Battambang to Phnom Penh, Cambodia. Normally, it's a five-hour bus ride if nothing goes wrong. Cambodia is a corrupt place, still is, full of bribery. And they work hard at trying to, to get bribes from all the people that are there. So we're on this bus, and we're headed on our way to, to Phnom Penh. Fourteen of us are sitting in the front of the bus. It was obvious that everyone knew who we were. We were the only white people on this bus. And so we're sitting in the first 14 seats. At this time, we didn't have a translator with us, nor do we have one of our Cambodian friends. But be quite frank, I had traveled that path many, many, many times. I've been in Asia many, many times. And there wasn't any fear because God was with us. And as I was leading this team, I knew we could get there. As we leave the bus station and head 
to Phnom Penh to catch a plane that would fly us from Phnom Penh to Chiang Mai, Thailand, there was this policeman that stood in the middle of the road, put his hand out like this. And when I say middle of the road, dirt, dusty, there's uh, motorbikes coming this way. There's, there's oxen, there's water buffaloes, there's people. It's just the biggest vehicles win. And so it's, it's a mass chaos of transportation. But in the middle of all this was this policeman had his hand out in the front of the road like this, wanting this bus to stop. The bus driver was thinking he wasn't going to stop. So as he's driving along, he sees this policeman. He continues to move along. The policeman puts his hand out in front of the bus and the bus driver wasn't talking, but I'm sure he thought they was trying to get a bribe from him so that he could continue to drive. He began to stay there and the bus driver began to move. So there was this bus, this policeman in front of the bus and the bus is moving and the policeman is backing up. Biggest vehicle wins in that moment. But the driver didn't want to run him over. You know why he didn't run run him over. So before we knew it, there was two other guys that joined this policeman. They looked like thugs. They stood out there and they're holding their hand out. And there's this standoff in the middle of Batambang, Cambodia, where our cell phones didn't work. We had no internet access. We didn't have a translator and no one spoke our language. Before we knew it, there were hundreds of people gathered around this stop bus. One of the men that was with these men that wanted to get to our bus driver brought his truck up alongside, ran down the dusty road. And before we knew it, there was this truck that was squeezing between these people, barely close enough to get between our bus and the, and the, the shops that were there. Backed right against the bus, we weren't going anywhere unless we decided that we would push the truck out of the way. A couple of these guys jumped in the back of this truck and were trying to take pictures of the bus driver. He hit his head on the steering wheel and pulled his hood up over top and so that he could not be seen. They were shouting things in, in, in Kamai that we didn't understand. I tried to communicate. They have someone that drives along with the bus driver and I asked him if he knew any English. He didn't know any English. And so I knew that we were beyond what we could do. Next thing we knew, there were some more guys that came into this conversation and they're pointing at the bus driver and he's on the telephone calling back probably to his boss and he's not moving. So we're sitting in the middle of a busy traffic road with vehicles and and, uh, tuk-tuks trying to get around us, blocking traffic and they were ticked. People were taking pictures, wondering what was going to happen. And before I knew it, a few of the guys pulled out some billy clubs. These look like baseball bats and they began to beat on the bus that we were on saying, turn. Bus driver didn't want anything to do with it. And before we knew it, they were taking their billy clubs and trying to knock the headlights out of the bus. And before we knew it, they were banging on the windshield of the vehicle that Isaiah and I were sitting right there at. And they were taking their billy clubs and beating on the glass of the door of this bus. I stood up and turned to my team and said this. It's obvious that this isn't a good situation. It's about how I said it. I said, but we know this. Greater is he that's in us than he that's in the world. We have no reason to fear. Do not be discouraged. Our God is with us. I said, we are a bright light in a very dark place. This is our chance to see our God come through for us. We don't have physical weapons. We don't have physical abilities, but we have a supernatural spiritual connection to to our God and he can intervene and he can rescue us. 
It was beautiful what happened. Not one of the teammates panicked. Even my 12-year-old son didn't. I watched our teammates, Grace Communities Blue Crew, I watched him begin praying. You could hear them praying out loud. I watched individuals opening up their Bibles, reading scripture where there were promises, do not fear, do not be dismayed. Our God is, is able to do more than we can ask or imagine. Just reading these scriptures, I heard girls, ladies on our bus singing worship songs. It was a magical moment. And not one of us feared. But we still didn't know how in the world we were going to get out of this one. Had no plan. Out of nowhere, and I'd literally say it was as if God himself dropped Savorn, oh, in the middle of this chaos. This is the national director of Cambodia. We had no connection with him. He did not know that our bus was being stopped by some some thugs who wanted bribery. He had no idea that we hadn't made it yet. We were two hours in the midst of this standoff. And I'm sitting in this front seat just praying to God, saying, God, I'm at the end of myself. I know that you want me to lead this group. God, do what you're good at and come through. And out of the corner of my eye, I look to the right and there's Savorn. It was as if God just dropped him right in the middle. And I watched him walk onto the scene. I watched automatic respect amongst all the Cambodian people who did not even know him. I watched him begin to chirp in his language. I watched him walk over to these thugs with with baseball bats and, and billy clubs. I watched him talk to them. And I watched him talk and I watched him talk. I watched him get on his phone and he waved at me at the window as he went by. And it was just this moment. And before I knew it, he's standing at the door, beating on the door and talking to the helper of the bus. And he says, let these people off the bus. And before we knew it, we were ushered off this bus as quick as we could, grabbed our luggage and up the road in another bus. It was an amazing moment. I still don't know how that happened. It doesn't matter because I know who did it. It was God. But those are the kind of stories that you and I need to pass on. The Ninevites, for crying out loud, witnessed a whole nation repent. Everybody bowing before God. Imagine the scene in Goshen. If everywhere you went... Uh, down the main streets of Goshen, all the connecting cities, Napanee, Millersburg, New Paris, Concord, Elkhart. Imagine if you were able to fly over and you saw the whole nation bowing before God. Wouldn't you think that someone would continue to tell that story? But they must not have. Because 150 years later, the whole nation is far, far and so far away from God that he wants to wipe them out. You see, here's the truth about our God. I know our God's a loving God. He gives me his grace and love, but our God's a God of holiness too. He's a God of just, he's a just God. He's a God of righteousness. And there comes a point where God himself looked at these people and said, enough is enough. God will Show his vengeance sooner or later on people who mock and disgrace his name. Bank on it. And we see it here in Nahum. Look at verse 14 of chapter 1. Nahum chapter 1 and verse 14 says this. The Lord has given a command concerning you, Nineveh. You will have no descendants to bear your name. I will what? What's the word? Destroy the carved images and cast idols 
that are in the temple of your gods. I will prepare your grave for your, for you are what? What's the word? Vile. So think, in a short period of time, they now have statues and idols where God once stood. And he says, I will destroy them. I'm going to wipe out your descendants that bear your name and people will not remember you anymore. Not only am I going to destroy your history books, he says, and the photo albums, but when someone goes to pay honor at your gravesite, it won't be there. They will not remember. I will obliterate this nation. Look what he says in verse 15. He says, look, there on the mountains, the feet of one who brings good news, who proclaims peace. Celebrate your festivals, O Judah, and fulfill your vows. No more will the wicked invade you. They will be completely destroyed. So what was it that caused this group of people to so quickly fade away from God? What was it? There's a sense that somewhere they lost their hunger and fire for the living God. It was a slow fade. Casting Crowns has a song talking about a slow fade. It just didn't happen one day. They said, you know, everybody one day said, hey, we're not going to follow God anymore. It was these little decisions along the way like you and I can make that, you know what, I'm going to try this and I'm going to spend more time doing this. And so it's just a slow fade and we begin and then I'm going to justify this sin that I'm committing. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to go down this path. I'm going to taste this. I'm going to follow through with this temptation just one time. And the one time turns to two and three. And before you know it, you have this, this habit of sin that consumes you. Before you know it, you're so far away from the mooring point of God that you've forgotten who God is. And that's what happened to the Ninevites. You see, God does put these protective barriers out there for us for a reason. In our lives, when we walk with him in the center of his will, some people say the safest place in the world is in the center of God's will. I always say, oh, baloney. Then you're not walking where I am with God. It's dangerous. He says, I'm going to send you out like sheep amongst wolves. But there's this promise that he will be with you no matter what. And even through your hardest, lowest, darkest times, you know God's there. That's the promise God gives us. There's no better place in the center of God's will. Besides, we're prone to wander. And when we get outside of his will, we find out for a short season of time, that pleasure was good. But there's an emptiness and there's a void and there's a hollowness that comes when you stand outside of the will of God and you end up just being dry and listless in your praise and worship. The hymn that has these words in it, says, we are prone to wonder. Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, Lord, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. There's this sense that we gotta regularly go to God and say, seal my heart, God, because if I'm left to my own, I will wander away. We watch what happens to the Ninevites here. God pulls the plug on them. God is in control and he cares what we do. Something's that we do something significant with our lives. He loves us too much to let us disgrace him and others. Look what happens to this group. Look how he pulls the plug. Look at chapter two and verse 10. She is pillaged, plundered, stripped, hearts melt, knees give way, bodies tremble, every face grows pale. It doesn't sound like a Disney moment. It's, it's darkness. It's, it's, it's 
God's wrath and vengeance. Look at verse 13 of chapter 2. He says, I am against you, declares the Lord Almighty. I will burn up your chariots in smoke, and the sword will devour your young lions. I will leave you no prey on the earth. The voice of your messengers will no longer be heard. I want you to think about something, Grace Community, and those who are Christ followers today. You don't want God to be against you. You just don't want that. Because you'll never make headway in this life if God stands against you. And the way to make sure that doesn't happen is by surrendering daily and submitting daily to God and confessing your sin regularly and following hard after him. You cannot ever defeat God. There's people that think they can. Look at chapter 3 and verse 5. These woes continue. Look at verse 5 of chapter 3. I am against you, declares the Lord Almighty. I will lift your skirts over your face. In other words, I'm about to embarrass you. I will show the nations your nakedness and the kingdoms your shame. Look what he says next. I will pelt you with what? Filth. I will treat you with what? Contempt and make you a spectacle. I got to ask this question. It's worth asking. How did this happen? How did it happen so in, within 150 years? Why weren't they still hungry after God? You know why it happens? It's because there was a father or a mother or a son or a daughter or a grandfather or a grandfather who had experienced the miraculous, who had surrendered to God, who had repented, that didn't tell anybody about it and didn't follow hard. And slowly, they went back to their old ways. Slowly, they walked away. And this whole generation that came up behind them saw these people who weren't Christ followers, who weren't God lovers, who didn't seek out Yahweh. And what they saw was hypocrisy and people far away from God, and they thought that was the norm. This is why I believe deeply in this three-chair principle that I have behind me. Bruce Wilkinson introduced this years ago. It's worth repeating today because this is what happened to the people of Nineveh. I have three chairs behind me. First chair, second chair, and third chair. The first chair of people are people of this generation that, that have this intimate relationship with God. They know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. They're born again. They regularly submit to him. They talk to him. They pray to him. They listen to the promptings of the Holy Spirit. They live their lives right here. The next group of people are moving slowly away. This generation grew up in godly homes. They know that there's a God. But they're living off their father and their mother's faith. And you'll hear him say things like, yeah, I've been in church my whole life. And you say, do you know Jesus? Yeah, my my family's known God our whole... No, do you know Jesus? Yeah, my family, I'm Baptist, I'm Brethren, I'm I'm Grace Brethren, I'm Methodist, I'm Pentecostal, I'm Mennonite, I'm, I'm, I'm whatever there is. You know, I've been that my whole life. And so they're living off their father and their mother's faith, but they don't have a personal intimate relationship with Jesus Christ. And so this next generation, this next chair are people who totally reject God. 
They're products. These are products of them. And these are children of them. And the reason they reject God, because they've been watching mom or dad, and mom and dad live a life of duplicity. Some days they're on, and they're following hard after God. And other days, they're, they're following hard after Satan. And so what they see is hypocrisy, and they say, well, if that's what it means to follow God, I want nothing to do with it. And these people are good people. In fact, they might be some of your best servants. They might be the most hospitable people. They're kind. They help you out in the neighborhood. They would help you out in a time of trouble. They would give their resources to help you, but they don't know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. So the question is this before we move on. Which chair are you setting in, by the way? Are you the first chair? Are you a second chair? Or are you a third chair? Or are you like some? You're like, well, I just put a cheek on both chairs. It's a good question to ask because the Ninevites were first chair Christians. Something happened to them though. I slowly allowed them to fade and wander away. The first chair is sold out Christians. They're sold out to God. I mean, it doesn't matter what happens. If their life is falling, it looks like it's falling apart. They know God has a good plan and they're going to hold on. They're going to trust him. If their marriage is on the rocks and and they're turning to God, they're saying, you know what? God's going to work this out. They're committed. The second chair is is just a group of, they compromise. Well, some days they're on and some days they're off. Depends how they feel that day. Depends if, 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 if they're getting a paycheck and they know they go to God when there's time of need. If they don't have any needs, they don't need God. The third chair is just plain old complacency. They care less about God. Their life is fine. They're self-made men, self-made women, and they have no need of God. So you have this, this gradual fading away, this gradual wandering away. First chair, what, what is their response to Christianity? The first chair, literally, they see Christ as a relationship. Second chair, to them, Christianity, it's a religion. It's like, yeah, I go to church every once in a while. Um, I, I bring my Bible and every, every once in a while I, I have quiet time. And, but church is religion to them. The third, third chair even moves another, a step farther and it's just, it's total rejection. And they've been watching these religious parents who, are, who have this du- du- life of duplicity. They don't want anything to do with it. If that means to follow God and on Sunday they're worshiping God and through the rest of the week they're cursing their neighbors. Why do I want that? The first chair power source comes from the promptings of the Holy Spirit. Second chair, the the power fades back and forth. Sometimes I can rely on myself. Sometimes I need God, I rely on him. Third chair, great people, but they're totally reliant upon their wealth, their income, their knowledge, their intellect, their ability, their looks, their homes, their their position in life, their jobs. What's the view of a Bible of a first chair person? They totally submit to it. If God says we should do it, then we do it. The second chair, you know what they think? Well, the Bible is a really good book. And you know, I got like three of them in my house and they give them away at Grace Community Church on Sunday. So I got like seven at the door. One of these days I'm gonna bring one so I don't need to ask for another one. Third chair, they, the Bible, their view of the Bible is they bring it out when Pastor Jim comes and visits. And it's a big one. It's like, see my family Bible? There it is. And so they have no need of the Bible. First chair digs in regularly. Second chair, sons and daughters never see dad dig into the word. And they wonder, 
Is he a Christ follower? I never see dad reading the word. See, here's the thing, dads. Let me, let me speak to men and, father, and husbands here because I believe this is important. I'm going to challenge you. How often do your sons and your daughters see you dig into God's word? How often do they see you spending time in his word, reading it? Listen, are you raising a generation of children who are going to end up second and third chair because they see a life of duplicity and wavering back and forth? Let me tell you something. Your life matters to them. How about the view of the church for a first chair person? They see it as a place of community where you come and you serve together and you, you care for one another and you go out on mission together and, and you're this thriving community that really does the one of another's and, and, and is vibrant. Second chair, you know what their view of church is? It's a place I'll attend if camping and, and ball games and, and uh, other things and recreation doesn't get in the way. It's like, that's what you place on your schedule first. You go to your schedule for the year and you put camping Ball games, recreation, and vacation, and then God. That's what second chair people do. And if your children and their children continue to see that you do that, guess what happens to them when they grow up, when they're sent off for college? Well, hey, you want to go do something this weekend? Sure, let's go do that. They don't dare think about worshiping on a Sunday morning. Let me tell you something, fathers. If we don't do something about the way we live our lives and once in a while tell our kids, no, we're going to do this, then when they leave the home, they're going to end up in the second and third chair and potentially going to hell. See, that's our news, but that's what happened to the Ninevites. Or how about marriage? First chair, they see it as a covenant before God, a lifelong commitment until God till death separates them. Second chair, it's a contract with some loopholes that I can get out of. If she does this or he does that, there it is. There's my out. Third chair, it's convenience. Well, we might as well get married and get the tax break. How about parenting? First chair followers of Christ, you know what they want to raise? They want to raise godly kids. So they, they fill their calendars with God and, and they invest in building them up. And, and second kid, second chair kitchen, our, our parents, you know what they want to raise? They want to raise good kids. I sure my kid's a good kid. I hope he listens to his boss and I hope he's kind and good. And, but they want to raise good kids. They want to raise godly kids. The third chair, you know what they want to do? They want to raise successful kids. Boy, I hope he gets a good job and hope she gets a good job and and I, and I hope they're a CEO and, and I hope they're a good athlete and, and I hope I invest enough time in them to become a good athlete because one day they could, they could make it like to the minor league and end up not knowing Jesus and going to hell. Listen to me, this is important stuff today, Grace Community. What chair are you sitting in, dad, mom? What chair are you sitting in, sis and bro? And what are you showing to the next generation? Here's a reality. People who sit in the second and third chair are most concerned with how they look to other people. And people who sit in the first chair are more concerned with how they look to God. Listen to me. Let's move back over to where we belong as Christ followers. There's an observation that was made after years and years of studying these first and second and third chair people. And this was the observation. First chair parents raise kids who most of the time follow hard after God. 
the rest of their lives. People and parents who raise and sit in second and third chair raise kids that will end up in third chair and far away from God. Listen to me. How are you doing as a parent? How are you doing as a Christ follower? Who are you influencing? Would the calendar of your life dictate that you are following hard after God? Listen, by the way, it's not too late to change seats. You don't have to stay here and you don't have to end up here. Today you can say, God, I want to be here. That's the chair that will change the world and your family. See, but the Ninevites missed it. There's this disconnection out there somewhere. We have a church all across America that's full of a lot of first chair Christians. And that's why for me, you'll hear me cry till I'm dead. We must tell the good news to others. We can't take this good news and keep it to ourselves and not live it out. Because if we do, we will lose the next generation. See, some of us think we're saved by our father's faith. I want you to turn to John in the New Testament, please. Turn to John, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. John chapter 1. And look at verse 13. Please, please turn there with me. John chapter 1 in verse 13. Look what it says. John chapter 1 in verse 13 says this. We'll go to verse 12 first. John 1 in verse 12 says... Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of whom? Who is it? God. Children born not of natural what? Descent. Nor of human what? Decision. Or of a husband's what? But born of what? Listen, you know what that means? I hear this all the time. So, do you, have, do, do you love God? Do you have a relationship with God? Oh, yeah, I, I've known God in my family. I was born in, I've been going to church since I was like three years old. No, do you know Jesus? Yeah, I mean, we've been Baptist and brethren and grace brethren since, you know, for like 30 years. I, you know, I've been in a church. No, do you know Jesus? Yeah, I've been going to church. My, my family, they've known God for a hundred years. We have known God. No, not your family. Do you know Jesus? And we have this generation that's rising up and thinking that they're going to make it on their father's and mother's faith. Let me tell you, it will not happen. It's only through a life-saving personal relationship with Jesus Christ. You will never stand before God, even as a husband. And will your wife get into heaven because you followed hard after him and gave your life to him? Nor will it be for a wife. Your faith will never, ever get your husband into heaven. And yet we have this generation of people. Seriously, how do your kids know you? Oh, my dad's good. He helps me, provides me. He buys me new shoes. He takes me to all my games. But did your dad ever talk to you about Jesus Christ? And did he ever pull a Bible out and say, hey, let's study this together? Did he ever pray with you? You ever seen pray with your wife? Your mom? Oh, never. And so... We have this generation that's rising up and then we wonder why our kids go off to college and church for crying out loud. We wonder why they wander away. It's because they've been watching us. But listen, we can change seats. Ninevites didn't do it and they lost the whole generation. So how do you know if you're slipping? 
1 John chapter 5 and verse 16 tells us that we can slip so far. Turn to 1 John. Turn back to the back of your Bible. You'll see 1 John, 2 John, and 3 John. You and I can slip so far that God himself literally will take us from earth. Look at John chapter 5 and verse 16. It says this, if anyone sees his brother commit a sin that does not lead to death. So logically, we could say there is a sin that leads to death. He should pray and God will give him life. I refer to those who sin that does not lead to death. Then in 1 John chapter 5 and verse 16, the second part says it. To those who sin does not lead to death, there is a sin that leads to death. I am not saying he should pray about that. Here's what that is. I'm not talking about the unpardonable sin. I'm not talking about the unforgivable sin, blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, when you deny God and you go to hell. I'm talking about Christ followers. There's a sin that we can commit that God looks at us and finally says, you know what, enough of this. I am going to remove you from this earth. It's those times often you have this puzzle and you wonder, this person just kind of just dies out of nowhere. Not all the time, but there's just times I wonder, why in the world? And then you hear a report that they weren't following hard after God. And you got to wonder, was that the time that God reached down and said, I just want to rescue you out because you're disgracing the na- my name and I'm just going to send you to heaven. It's an act of grace, by the way, that he would do that. But there is a sin that we can commit. It's, a, it's, a, a, it's when we move from the first chair to the second and third where we're totally away from God and we're not giving him any glory and we're disgraced to him. And if there was a time that you repented and it was a genuine conversion, God can yank you from this earth. So the question is, how do you know when you're slipping? I think there's a lot of ways to check that out. I think when you lose your burden for lost people, when you stop sharing your faith, you got to ask this question. Am I a Christ follower? Can I ask you a personal question? Who is the last person that you opened your mouth of and told them about the good news of Jesus where you said, you need Jesus? Who, how many of you are still living behind the fear and your personality? And you're saying, well, that's why. Maybe it's because you've lost your hunger for God. Another indicator is a lack of passion for prayer. Not just God help me, God I love you. Talking to God. We just have this lack of passion for prayer. I think another indicator is when your praises are old. You start to talk about stories that happened six months ago, 12 months ago, a year ago, and you don't have any fresh praise that's, that has surfaced in your life within the last week or two or last month. It's like when you go for praise time, it's like, well, let me think, when was the last time? It's because you're not listening to God and you're not walking with him. Praises should be birthing all around us. Our God is alive and well. And there's no hunger for holiness when you justify your habits of sin, your pornography and and your TV viewing, and your coarse talk, and your flirting, and, and you just justify it. Oh, it's just guys, it's just girls, and, you, and you're addicted to romantic novels, and, and you're having these affairs and social media, and it's just, you know, it's just kind of fun. You like just bantering back and forth, and, and you begin to justify sin. Or when you haven't heard God's voice in a very long time. I pray this never happens because when it does, we will lose the next generation. See, we poison the next generation by living those kind of lives. Judges chapter 2 and verse 10 said it this way. They said, a whole generation grew up. 
that neither knew God or had heard about his miraculous things that he had done. How is that possible? None of us showed us that. And I'll be really honest with you today. We're not immune from the judgment of God that we see in Nahum. Take a look around. How often do you see families and individuals slipping and you wonder, boy, they go to church and that's about it. Church is just like, well, they come and it's like another thing on the calendar, but there's no life there. Look at your kids, dads. Do you see life in them? I'm not talking about skills and abilities and academic awards. I'm talking about hunger for Jesus. Do you see it? And maybe if you don't, you got to ask the question, do they see it in me? Maybe our schedules are filled with stuff that doesn't have eternal value. Maybe it's time to say, you know what? Not next summer, not next year, not next fall, not next winter. This year, I'm going back to the first chair. We still have time for our kids in the next generation. See, here's why I tell you this today. Too much is at stake. Because I see babies born every day that if someone doesn't tell them about Jesus Christ, they're going to hell. And it'd be a sad day for me if Grace Community Church, 150 years from now, where there wasn't a remnant left that knew God and had witnessed the miraculous and was still telling others about it. We're prone to wonder. See, we need to make God our everything. Everything. Lord, help us today. These are hard words, but these are important words. Jesus, I pray that for those who know Christ in this room, that there would be a deep conviction that there needs to be conviction. And I pray that there would be repentance if there needs to be repentance. I pray that dads would have hard talks with you this week and then with their families and say, from this day forward, it'll be different. And it might mean that their kids don't like them as much. But you love them, God. I pray, Jesus, that you would help us to keep from wandering. I pray that we would make you our everything. And I pray when we say those words, we would mean that, God. God, even as we sing this last song, it's a, it's a commitment. It's, 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 it's a vow to you that you will be everything. I pray, God, that Grace Community Church would always, always be first chair Christians. In Jesus' name, amen.